And that's Van Halen, 5150, one of my favorite albums, CDs, cassettes of the, of the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, Van Halen, that's the Van Hagar, Van Hagar uh, era where Sammy, Van, Sammy Hagar was the lead singer for Van Halen. There's your, uh, your original Van Halen lovers, David Lee Ross, and there's your Sammy Hagar lovers. I, I was a big fan of Sammy. I saw Sammy in 1979, first time ever. They called him the Red Rocker. He opened up for Boston. I was a senior in high school. And um, all my friends that I went to the concert with passed out before the concert started. And Sammy Hagar came on and uh, he blew me away. He, he was fantastic. And then Boston was Boston. Boston was one of the greatest bands that, that I, I, I've ever gotten the chance to see with some of the... And, and, and Van Halen, by the way, had a lot of Boston in them and um, the way they did things. And they, that was a special time in music. And I grew up right around there. I'm very proud of that. I'm pretty proud of the things that I experienced via music. And I've, I'm really proud of the things we've, I've experienced and, and the people that I've had on this show, on this, on this podcast. Not a show. It's a podcast. It's me talking to you like I talk to you if I met you. At a, at, a, at a establishment that we were sharing a cocktail. Remember those days? Uh, you know, those days may be gone for now, but uh, I look forward to, to maybe sharing one with you in the near future. But I've got a great guest for you lined up today, and we're going to talk for the next hour and a half. Uh, his name is Chuck Simon, trainer, uh, and he's a trainer, and actually he's just an all-around great, great person in racing. And that's one thing about this game. You meet the greatest people in the world. And let's see if we can find Chuck. Well, there he is, Mr. Chuck Simon. You can find him on Twitter at, at Cannon Shell. Known Chuck a long time. We didn't get along at first. Chuck's got sort of something I have, a mouth on him, which is good. He says it like it is. I love Chuck. He's on board with us. Chuck Simon, welcome to Racing with Bruno's podcast. Thank you. Usually you don't disparage your guests when they first come on, but <laughs> that's you. You were wrong about what we, we first had an argument about. You're, you're still wrong. <laughs> hey, there's my Chuck. There's my Chuck. Um, so Chuck, you trained for over 20 years with a public stable. I came across for you, first of all, in Kentucky when you had a horse named Battle Call, correct? Battle One. Battle One. And you've had over 2,600 starters. You've had almost 400 winners. You started horses at 38 different tracks. And you've got opinions. And I think you have good opinions. Uh, you have... You have good ideas about the game, and that's what I wanted to have you on. So, first of all, um, you started a, a new position. You left training. How has that transition been getting out of training? Getting out of training is way, way easier than getting in training. And, and, and I wouldn't say that I necessarily have just opinions. I have experience. Okay. 
good, good way of putting it. Okay. People have opinions, but they have opinions and they don't know what the hell they're talking about. In horse racing, unfortunately, that is about 90% of opinions. And, and, and it's actually probably more informed now than, than we've ever been. No, you're right. That's a good way of putting it. Good. You have a lot of experience. So yeah. can I ask you some quick questions and then we can get on to a little bit more about Chuck, where Chuck's going. Um, one thing that you and I have always discussed is medication. Right. I'm not currently on any medications. <laughs> Do you want to be? <laughs> that would probably be a better podcast without me on them than if I was on them. Oh, well, <laughs> I always laugh when I'm around you. You know, I always laugh. You have this, this dry sense of humor that makes me laugh. Um, let's talk about Lasix. I had Sid Gustafson on. Hold on, hold on. Hold on. We're going right to Lasix? We're going right to the Lasix. Oh, God. Okay. Okay. Oh, well, wait a minute. Why don't you take it? This is Chuck's show. Well, I don't show. have nothing to take. Huh? I don't, I don't take Lasix. My mom used to take Lasix. It did not improve her performance at all. Welcome to Chuck Simon's Comedy Hour. Well, it's, it's actually true on both occasions. Of course, well, my mom took it like people take it, you know, every day, because that's how it's, it's supposed to be utilized in, in people. Unlike animals, and when uh, racehorses in particular, when they use studies that show well in people, well in people, number one, it's usually given to people with uh, health issues. Number two, it's usually given to elderly people with health issues. Number three, they take it every day. So the studies are just pointless. The fact of the matter is it's taken 20 years for them to, to scrape up enough nonsense to try to, you know, uh, convince the the public, though the public in the most for the most part does not care. Um, it was not this was a made up issue. This was an industry created issue. This was not something that was uh, that came from outside and we had to answer for it. it. It was created by those in the industry, and it's when you look back now at especially these days, you look at the industry's issues and and, and all the problems that we are facing, like, you know, extinction, it seems to be a trivial matter. And it's not, because what it is essentially is is something, it's the best that we have for a problem that's not going away. And it's our best solution. Um, the problem is that people like that guy you had on the show, he, he, he doesn't live in, in the world of reality. He lives in some fantasy land where every horse should be this organic creature and, and um, we, you know, they never have any, any illnesses or sicknesses or any injuries and it's, anything that does happen to them is the creation of poor management or poor training or this or greed or some other nonsense, some bullshit that they blame it on. And it's, it's never been a topic that's been fairly discussed. It never has, but it, it, it's, it's, you know, got to the political point where you're either for it or against it when it, it's just silly. It's, what is, so, so Chuck is against it. And 
Chuck. I'm not against Lasix. Lasix is the, the best. I mean, you're for Lasix. Pardon me. For Lasix. I'm not for Lasix. <laughs> I'm for treating horses <laughs> in the best possible manner that we can. It's cheap. It's easy. It doesn't have great side effects. And, and it's one of the things that can be given across the board to everyone, whether it's a $2,500 claimer at Will Rogers or it's a, a horse uh, owned by some quadrillionaire. We, we all use it the same way. It costs the same. It's the one level playing field that we have in this business. And of course, they want to take it away. But who wants to take it away? You know, the people with all the money. Why do they want to take it away? Those are nuts. <laughs> That's not a reason. You can't say, Your Honor, I object. Why do you object, uh, Counselor Simon? Because it's nuts. You, know, you can't Listen, do that. If, if we were in a court of law, this case would have been thrown out. Okay. Because the evidence that uh, on their side is just anecdotal and made up. I mean, it's, it's just in some cases, it's just made up stuff. Well, let me, let me ask you this. Here, here, here's one of the questions that, that you know I always ask people. How is the elimination of Lasix going to make our game better? And they always give me these flowery essay-type answers. Oh, well, the people will have more confidence in the bullshit. <laughs> I know what it is. It's a tax on owners. Because every owner that owns a horse, guess what? Your horse is probably going to bleed in some way, shape, or form at some point. And if it becomes a chronic issue, well, the amount of money you're going to spend trying to solve that issue versus a shot of Lasix, it, it's, it might be a thousand times more. And you also get into the situation where now we have to try herbal remedies or things like that. And some of them actually probably do help. There's no doubt about it that there's things that advances and, and, and there are things that we could probably do, but nothing is going to stop it, and including Lasix. But it does help. It helps a lot. And in places like Florida, with the climate and the humidity and the issues that we have here that are unique to southern Florida, it's a huge problem. It's a huge problem. Now, when you say it's a huge problem, uh, having your experience that you have, you know, with over 2,600 starters, have you been able to get an idea when you see a horse run in a particular way or the way things are going that you can predict if a horse is going to bleed or not? No. I mean, you, you might say if it's your own horse, obviously you can scope them after the race and find out. But, yeah, there, there's, there's times where you'll see a horse... Um, stop the horse put his head up or, or you know any kind of kind of excuse that you could find out and a lot of times listen people don't don't understand as well that bleeding is not necessarily the primary problem a lot of times it's a symptom of something else okay um, that's where i was getting at so what so what are the kind of symptoms that that you know that would cause a horse to bleed there's a lot of things. I mean, the one thing about horses is they're flight animals. And, you know, you'll see horses that have particular styles. The horses that, that want to run on the front end. They want to be ahead of everybody. You see horses that, that don't have that, that, that are the opposite. They, they want to come from behind. They don't have that early speed. 
And what will happen sometimes is if a horse, say, for instance, is generally breaking sharp and is in front in a race, and they stumble at the start, and they wind up behind horses and getting dirt thrown in their face, and they panic a little bit. You know, the stress level. I mean, and of course, this is not, you know, everyone's going to say, well, do you have any scientific proof, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, no. But the fact is that the amount of horses that bleed, that are speed horses, that break sharp and wind up not being on the lead, the, the, the amount of horses, in my experience, that have bled is extremely high. Um, sometimes horses will bleed because there's something bothering them, something sore. And it's a stress thing. Um, there are reasons that are actual valid scientific reasons about, um, especially here where we never get a freeze and the, the bugs never actually die, uh, you know, viral reasons, infections in, in the horse's system. One of the main topics, Chuck, that there's a lot of talk on social media is takeout. And takeout seems to be a sticking point with a lot of people. Let's chat a little bit about that. Uh, well, it's, it's not an easy subject to discuss because it's very complicated. Just the, the dollar dollar is bet depending on where it's bet depending on what track it's bet at what track it's bet on what adw it's bet through the the, the breakdown is, is is complicated um and that would that's what makes just wholesale takeout reductions difficult um it's not of course the end of the world but hard to, to judge uh, we, we have to face the fact that at least 20% and, and probably a, a higher percentage of our money comes through the batch players uh, who are of course you know they're not really horse players they're they're, they're playing on the margin they're, they're, they're explain that to players. the folks explain the what who they are uh, you, you could get someone much better to explain this to me, but basically these are guys who bet using algorithms. Um, the algorithms make the bets based upon uh, whatever the, the most likely um, result is to be, of course, with the odds uh, being a key factor. Um, they're they're Basically. looking to break even, right? No, they're looking to, yeah, I mean, they're looking to break even because they're getting a lot of their money back. They're getting uh, a percentage back, um, I don't know, probably somewhere between 5 and 8%. So if you bet uh, $50 million and you get 8% back, then you've done pretty good. And all you have um, to do is really break even. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's probably a lot more complicated than that simply, but, but in the end that that's, um, you know, that, that, that's a, a really tough handicap to overcome for regular horse players. Is that what we see in odd drops? 
Is that why we see a horse go off at five to two? He's five to two, and he goes. They're doing the middle of the running. He goes down to nine to five. Is that those players trying to edge their bets just to break uh, no, even? The, most, those guys don't actually make bets. They do computer bets for them. It's not like they're punching tickets themselves. So, yeah, maybe some of that, uh, especially in the in the the exotic wagers. I'm sure you know they're trying to find. Um, value in these places and, and, and from value from their point is that they run you know maybe the, the race a million times and, and the, there's an exact combination that and their computer models should pay $38 and it's currently paying 52 I mean they're gonna they're gonna bury that one and to get it to you know where they think it should be but it's, it's a complicated issue the, the problem is that they're they're here and if everyone shut them out, then you would see a big handle decline across the board. Uh, there's no one has the stomach for that. Um, Do you know like what the, kind of wagers? Like the jackpot wagers, you know, racetracks love jackpot wagers because it creates handle and it creates uh, something for them to promote and. They have, um, you know, for, for their standpoint, they say, hey, you know, on that payout day, I know our, our takeout is exorbitant. The other day is building it up. And in the long run, that's going to be uh, a negative because you're beating your everyday players up every single day and you're not giving them anything back unless they hit a single ticket, which is just, you know, extremely difficult to do. So you're taking a lot of money out of out of um, out of play, but the the thing is that, that one thing people have to remember about racing executives is that they they're not like Jerry Jones for the Cowboys. They don't own the team. They don't own the track. So they're trying to stay employed. That's their number one goal: is to stay employed. And when they can come to their bosses and say, hey, we have this jackpot wager, and look, we paid it out on, on Saturday, uh, the day after this, our big race, and uh, we did $20 million that day because, uh, you know, we, we got $9 million bet into this thing. So that's great, you know. Everyone thinks, well, that's great. That's great for that debt, sure. And it makes their numbers look great, but... Um, is that is, is that really the bottom line? It seems like, Chuck. It seems like the bottom line now in any business is the, is is basically showing, um, a healthy bottom line. That's it. Not customer service. Not anything else. Just healthy bottom line. Customer service and those things that, that that should be part of the bottom line. You know, a customer a business that abuses their customers generally loses, um, business. Racing has lost business. But racing doesn't like to talk about it. I mean, handle uh, was fifteen million 12, 10 years, twelve years ago, and it's eleven or ten million now. We've lost market share, and it's going to get harder and harder, and it's going to get worse and worse. But we don't like to talk about that. And you know, the jackpot wagers are a perfect—they're uh, a perfect example in that the racing execs. This is great for them, and 
it, it it's good for for it looks good to their bosses and in that that quarter's wagers that meet maybe the money is up uh their handles up because they had a couple real big carryovers um so from that standpoint you know everyone's thinking well it's a good thing the problem is it, it, it hurts your players your players are losing more money so it, it's just not sometimes you know horsemen we get blamed for stuff and a lot of times we get blamed for some of the simulcast contracts and this and that and the fact of the matter is that the customer the, the, the betting customer is the customer of the track um not us we're just we're one of the we're one of the spokes on the wheel and it isn't saying the horsemen the horsemen's groups make horrible decisions all the time trust me they don't make the right choice they don't make the right choice for a lot of reasons can you give an Um, example i prefer not to but i mean you don't have to be a brain surgeon to look at some of the places that have squandered you know a billion dollars worth of uh of, of purse money and and have barely raised their handle. Um, now, now they're going to pay for it because when their their racing comes back, no one bets on it. Um, you, you don't like have to be uh, Inspector Clouseau to figure out what what circuit I'm talking about. But by the same, but 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 there's just um, everything is complicated. You know, racing does a terrible job of explaining what the hell's going on, and I'm telling you. People think a lot of these people are in the know. A lot of them are in the know, don't really know. They just think they know. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of unsaid issues. You know, so little is actually um, just easy to solve or easy to fix. And some of the things that are easy to fix, they won't. I mean, we've talked about it a million times. One of the biggest detriments to racing is that they've allowed all of the talent to be concentrated in so few barns that the competition on the track ha- has suffered because of it. And it's it's an issue that could be solved. It can actually be solved internally relatively easily. But no one wants to do it. No one wants to say no. And what happens is you get the concentration of talent has led to the concentration of power. And you have situations where racetracks are bending over backwards to help the guys that need it the least. Uh, they're creating races so that these guys can get all their horses raced. And, and then and then to see the, the, the general public will say, well, look at this five-horse field. Because most explain, of okay, that, explain what you just said. Explain in layman's terms to people out there what you just said. I get what you just said, but can you explain it to them in, in layman's terms? Well, you know, it, it's. I think anyone that would be listening to this podcast would be someone that would understand that over the last 20 years, the rise of these barns that have hundreds of horses in them, or in, in you know, in the case of some of them, a hundred, but a hundred, all of the you know, good ones, is that it's just math in, in a lot of ways. If you take, um, if there's... 500 good horses at a track and you divide them by 40 trainers, you're going to get better races than if you divide them by five trainers. It's just, it's just mass. There isn't enough races to cover uh, a trainer that has 200 horses. 
at a track? There isn't. Of course there's not. And the fact is that the owners allow this to happen. They they continue to send them to the same guys, and the tracks allow it to happen. And no one budges. I will agree. I will agree with you on that. I mean, I have always said. Like I said, it's mass. If you divide it up, it's mass. I mean, if the NBA only allowed the Lakers, the Celtics, and uh, um, the Miami Heat to have, you know, players that uh, average twenty points a game, well, how often, you know, how long until all these other teams that can't compete would just go out of business? Well, that's happening here. The, the middle class trainer, guys like me. We don't train anymore, or we train lesser, or we have, you know, nothing. And it's just, it's, it's just myopic to think that, like, oh, well, you know, I get, one guy told me on Twitter one day, well, you know, guys like Todd and Chad, they just need other trainers to like, compete with them. And, and I laughed. I said, well, compete with them at, at what, pool? In a running race? <laughs> like, you know, like, like play bowling? Like, they, they don't run. They're not the runner. They're not the people running. They, they do well. They're great trainers. They're smart guys. They're, they'd probably be successful in any business they took. I go, but the advantages that they have now in this business are so overwhelming that it's affected the quality of racing pretty much everywhere outside of, uh, you know, a, a derby week or, or, you know, like like little boutique meets. It's tough. I mean, even Saratoga. Saratoga's great, but they've extended it so long, and those guys hold so much sway, and it's so expensive that the the, the regular sized trainers they, they don't they can't hardly compete there anymore. What about New York with the labor yeah. board and everything? Has that become the elephant in the room to really to really discuss? Because I think New York's in trouble. I, I don't see how guys can stay in business there. To be honest with you. I mean, no offense. The workers that work on the uh, horses are great guys for the most part. They work their ass off. Um, you know, they, they, they work long, hard hours. A lot of them really care about their horses. They take pride in what they do. But the amount, the, the way a, a, a race barn is set up, you can't pay them like there are people who are working in a a factory or a uh, a convenience store and you know we had a chance 20-25 years ago the American Horse Council and of course this is not you know I wasn't there but the American Horse Council which is a huge lobbying organization in Washington D.C. they thought that they could get our workers classified as agriculture and you know what the business did nothing we ignored it. Owners don't really care. Just figures the trainers' problems. Tracks, they didn't care. Breeders, they didn't care. Jockeys didn't care. No one really cared. And the trainers are too stupid to make a big deal out of it. So what happened? Nothing. And now you have these situations where they beat up on us because we're small businesses. The biggest business is a ridiculously small. Asmussen's got a giant operation. He's a ridiculously small business. In, in the real world, you know, small businesses are, are, are classified as businesses with less than 10,000 employees. So, um, you, you, 
you know, you, you run the risk of, of not doing the right thing for your horse because you're, you're having to, um, you know, you're having to watch guys hours so much. I, I don't know how they're going to make it up there. I really don't. Uh, especially with, with other, other states like Kentucky, especially, um, doing so well purse-wise because of, of the slots and the, uh, you know, the focus there. Of course, they, they have short meets as well, which, which helps a lot. If, if Churchill Downs ran 10 months a year, the purses wouldn't be nearly what they are. But, um, but no, there, there's, there's a definite problem there, and I have no clue how to solve it because the idea that we're going to get any help from the state of New York is just... Laughable. There's, there's no chance. And no chance. and you know, I've been talking to a few people, you know, discussing possibly Saratoga. Saratoga's in trouble this year because well, who knows? I mean, if you don't have fans of Saratoga, well, they, I go farther down, Chuck. You know, Saratoga is depend depends on guys from Florida. Most of all, people from Kentucky to ship in, and some of their major barns there are from Kentucky. One of them, the Steve Asmussen barn. And you get, you know, a a large percentage of their entries comes from out of state. With this COVID-19 and things the way are going, and with possibly having two major meets here in Kentucky between Churchill and Keeneland, you've got yourself a situation that, Saratoga, New York, is not going to get the horses they used to. They might be really bare, bare well, entries one, up there. One of the things that, that's that's certainly going to be certainly going to help from this standpoint is is running five days a week, um, as opposed to six, how it was, you know, forever. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but yeah, there's there's so many issues related to. To the co- well, we don't know what's going to happen if Keeneland's going to run a summer meet like they're threatening to do. Um, you know, the Derby being September fifth kind of changes everything for, for those. You know, for the three year olds, and uh, I, I don't know. I, I know that the meat and potato New York guys are are struggling because they've had no racing for in what two months, two and a half months. We're going to go on by the time they get started um and they're gonna handle a ton of money in the beginning a ton of money they're the first day in new york if they have a good card they're, they're gonna do great but um so it's the day in and day out stuff that's gonna be tough it is an issue well steve zorn did a piece on um on um the
meat of the year that, that actually uh, still bets a significant chunk of it, uh, of, of the money is bet on track. I think he said that uh, it was around 20% of the Saratoga handle is on track. Considering how, how high the handle is in Saratoga, that, that's, a pretty, that's a pretty big number. Uh, and of course, Naira and the Horsemen get a huge percentage of that on-track handle. If you take that, you take that twenty percent and turn it to zero, the the gains they're going to have to make from the off-track, if everything is off-track, it's going to have to be a significant, significant number. And it just is it's hard to believe that by that point, if there are other sports back going, um, especially football. Football is the big. Because you know what, the NBA comes back. There's going to be betting on the NBA more than there was before. But the same with baseball. But that's only because there's so other few other few other options out there to bet on. The big, the big elephant in the room is, is football. If football, the NFL and college football comes back, they're going to see a massive number. Uh, you know, betting wise. So we're going to lose a ton of. Uh, a ton of that market that we were kind of right now have a monopoly on. So to, to, uh, to there, and of course, Saratoga is not, you know, the, the season doesn't really start to end, but, um, you know, they also have to consider New York has to remember that they have Belmont in the fall. And a lot of the money for Belmont in the fall is made in Belmont in the spring and, you know, the overflow from Saratoga. So if they keep purses, you know, artificially high, uh, even with a cut, that what what does that do for the fall? You know, what does that do for the winter? And, and it, it's a it's a complicated thing because yeah, Saratoga's going to probably do fine, but like you said, uh, having enough horses is a problem. It really it really is. Now let me um... the, you know I, I mean I, I know from if if I was still training and I had some horses that fit at Saratoga. I mean, personally, I would go because I'm from there. But if you're not from there and you're going to go up there and you're going to rent a place or stay in a hotel and, you know, they're not going to have anybody on track, um, it's going to be uh, – do you really want to put all that money in when maybe you could just, uh, you know, ship from, from Belmont, um, you know, instead of having to put – you're helping all your people up and your exercise riders because they're not allowed to stay on the track and uh, your assistants and you, I mean, and uh, is housing going to be limited in Saratoga? Are people going to be real interested in, in renting out their house to people? That's, that's a good point. That's uh, a really good I, I point. Some are going to be because they, 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 they really rely on it. I think there's going to be a huge fallout for the city of Saratoga. I mean, you have a lot. One thing about Saratoga is, and, and it's kind of one of the appeals to Saratoga, is there's always kind of new stuff coming and new restaurants. And new, well, those generally a new business, a new restaurant, a new a new shop. Very, very, they're playing with borrowed money. And they're making, you know, their business plan was based on projections that don't include a Saratoga without fans. Right. So well, let, let, me, let me switch gears real quick. Because you mentioned about how we just don't seem to do a whole lot of things. On March 9th, the federal government did something when the FBI came in and had been running a uh, sting operation 
on two different trainers that I knew you knew, Jason Service and Georgie Navarro, and a number of other people. What did Chuck Simon think about that? What did he think about the indictments? What did he think about the arrest? What, what do you think is the fallout from that? What did I think? I, I, was, I was surprised, but I wasn't. Um, and, you know, a lot, certainly they've, uh, you know, the, there's been a lot of smoke around both of those guys. I know both of the guys personally. One was a client of mine in the, the business of running for the HGPA. Uh, Jason shared a barn with me for the last four or five years. And uh, to be honest, I, I never saw anything like, I, I never saw anything on uh, Unusual. It wasn't like uh, you know. I said, "Oh, here they come with the, you know, the the, the, the vials with the smoke coming out of the top of them or anything." But I mean, certainly the the numbers that they uh, they had would cause people to, to cast a, a suspicious eye. Um, I'll be honest. The, the thing that really kind of blew me away more than anything was that uh, they that those two were in contact. That they were actually like communicating. And that, that that was that was surprising to me. I'll, I'll be honest, because they didn't seem like they didn't seem like guys that would be in contact with each other. Put it that way. I don't know how else to put it. I mean, one is uh, you know one is really loud, and the other one's really not. So it just is kind of a, an unusual situation. But uh, the truth is, and this is just conjecture this is just me like you know trying to think about how things are going to be looked at from the government's point of view is i don't think this case is ever going to get as bad as it could have been because to me i mean we've given away what three four trillion dollars the government um these are not they're high profile cases but we're not talking about terrorists. We're not talking about Russia. We're not talking about anybody, you know, uh, you know, murdering people. Or, or, or it's not the mob. So you know, these guys are looking at like five-year sentences. So to me, um, I, I, I'm, I'm questioning. I mean, obviously they're going to go forward and, and, and prosecute these guys, and they have a shitload of evidence and all that stuff. But how much deeper it gets in the business, I don't know. Of course, they can. You know that they have evidence. They, they have a certain amount of time. I, I guess they. I mean, I'm not a lawyer, but it's not like they couldn't wait a couple of years and, and maybe build a case against somebody else. Because you know, the one thing about people in this business is is that they they're 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 silly and they think that um, oh, it's it's past. You know, everything's gone bad. You know, they just got those guys, and we haven't heard any news for six months or a year or two years. And you know, I'll go back to doing whatever I was, I was doing. Is that is that a is that a major problem you think in racing? It's probably not as bad as some people think it is, and it's probably worse than others think it is. The problem, you know, the problem we get into even with this particular case is that what was listed as being an illegal drug that service was using isn't really. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of a gray area in that two laboratories had tested that product and determined that it had no performance-enhancing capabilities and said 
they they weren't going to test for it. Now, that was several years ago. What it's labeled as what he was getting, was it the same thing? Was I, Who knows? I don't know. But you get into a, a question of what exactly is right and not, not right or wrong, but what is legal and not legal? Because that's where the, the basis has to be. Legal and not legal. Um, and that's the things guys like Sid don't get is that horses have issues and we have to deal with them. You can't just send a horse to the farm. Every, it'd be like if you, you know, if, if an, I guess nowadays, if an employee has a cold, they're going to not be allowed to come to work. But, you know, there, there's some things that aren't going to just magically heal. You, you need to, to, to deal with them. And there's a lot of things that we can do in the veterinary advances have, have been huge in the last 20 years. But it just, there's, there's so many areas where I, I would, like when I train, I, I, would, I would never take a chance. I would always be the guy that didn't push the envelope. And if, if okay, this, this, this medication was allowed 24 hours out, I wasn't giving it 24 hours and 30 minutes out. I was giving it 30 hours out. Because in a lot of cases, it, it, the half-life of those things wear off in six, eight hours anyways. Um, is there so guys that do push the envelope in your opinion of course guys that push the envelope in any 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 competition where money is involved people are going to push the envelope every single time how do we stop but it you can't stop it it's human nature the, the stock market anywhere you guys are always going to look for an edge stopping it you can't stop it stop stop it but you have to keep you have to make the rules strict but you have to make them realistic you have to make people cognizant of them but you have to you can't just apply them uh, to certain people they need to be applied to everyone what i always felt when i worked as an investigator that it was quite the shock to people when you walk somebody out in handcuffs that, to me, was the biggest deterrent of them all. Um, I'd like to see, uh, you know, I, I, I do believe, like, for example, the KHRC up here uh, and, you know, uh, at, in Kentucky. Um, I could see where, you know, they're serious. And there's other states that are not as serious. Well, the K, they also have a lot of money. Right. Well, that's they're true. True. They have a, they have, an, they have an active board of, of uh, you know uh, the commissioners are are, are are active. I don't always agree with them, but they they're, they pay attention and, and they have a lot of meetings and you know they're front and it's Kentucky. It should be that way. The problem with this, Bruno, is when you take someone out in handcuffs, we go back to not it's not right or wrong. It's legal or illegal. Even these guys, okay? You think all right? They got a mountain of evidence. The feds don't come and pull guys out in the middle of the night unless they have a shitload of evidence. They win 95% of their cases for a reason. Right. But well, and, and that's one of the problems, about, I think, in racing. We're not, we're, not talking about, we're not talking about these guys going to prison for, you know, 30 years. But, but the, Chuck, the, let me, let me, let me the just... First mi- time of, the first-time offenders, the, 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 the charge of misbranding doesn't carry a lot of, you know... 
Navarro's got a Navarro's got more charges on him because there's animal cruelty on there too. Yeah, I mean, so. that's some other stuff. But but, 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 but and, and you know maybe there there come state charges at some point. I I don't know. But you're not you know I don't know. It's it's yeah I, I agree. I mean you take somebody out of handcuffs. That's way different than giving a guy a three month suspension and everybody knows he's training the horses. Well, uh, I mean listen, we have people all over the place. That are training horses, uh, and someone else's name. Every every track has them, yes. and most of them are, are, are lower level guys. You know, they're not the, they're the guys that can't get workman's comp. You know what I mean? They're not like guys who are winning forty two percent, but there of course there are a couple famous ones that are you know like that. But we we have that at every track. Every track I've ever been to, there's always a couple guys. You know, the grooms or the the the, the exercise riders training a horse, but you know he can't afford to work this comp, so he's running in uh, you know this guy's name, um, and that's not really a great thing either. Well, but, you know, but, uh, since you're on that, since you're on that, you know, in Florida, one of the biggest things that I come across is trainers just pop out of the ground. What is it with Florida where you get all of a sudden you go, who's this guy? You know, and, and, and he pops out of the ground. He wins five, you know, 40 percent of the races. You know, and then you're like, you have no idea who the man is. I know there's a large Venezuelan South American influence here in Florida. Uh, tell me a little bit. You've been there. You've dealt on the on the on on the horseman's board. You've dealt. Where do these people come from? How do they get their license? Uh, they're getting a license nowadays. I was telling somebody the other day a story. So, well, when you took your trainer's test, I said, I got to be honest with you, I never took a trainer's test. He's like, Well, what do you mean? I said, When you get your license, I said, I was an assistant uh, for Tom Skippington, and then. Brown Jerkins for six and a half years. And I got the opportunity to train for the Ramses. And uh, Mr. Ramsey wanted me like then. You know, he's an impulsive guy. And <laughs> he decided to hire me. And he, went, he wanted me like ASAP, like come now, you know, like when can you be here? So I called down to the commission in Kentucky. And I said, uh, I'm an assistant trainer. Um, I explained the situation. When you know can I get uh, do the trainer's test? Uh, oh well, we, we we're not going to do one. You know, we only do them monthly, and, and just missed it last week, so it's not going to be for another couple of weeks. So I'm like, that's that's not going to work. I didn't know Mr. Ramsey that well, but I knew that that wasn't going to fly. So I went to I uh, was at Belmont because I was working Jerkins. So I went uh, the next day to um, see the steward there, uh, David Hicks. And uh, I went in, I explained the situation, Mr. Hicks, you know, I got an opportunity to start training uh, in Kentucky, but they don't do the test and I got to start, you know, like, I got to leave like in two days and uh, I'm not sure what to do. And he said, well, he goes, uh, let me ask you a question. I said, yeah. He goes, how long did you work for Alan Jerkins? Six years. He goes, who did you work for before that? And I told him, you know, the people I worked for before that. And he looked at me and he kind of said, son, you've had enough of a test for the last six years. There's nothing I can ask you. You, you shouldn't already know the answer to working for that man. He goes, you bring me a proof of insurance tomorrow and I'll give you your trainer's license. 
I said, thank you, sir. So I got the work, the workman's comp slip. I came in the next day. They licensed me official trainer. So I was actually a trainer in New York. Before, I was a trainer in Kentucky, even though I started in Kentucky. How was that experience under Alan Jerkins? <laughs> it was, it's funny, I put up a picture of him and my, me. I, I, I'm moving from the, the place that I live to a different place. And, you know, whenever you move, uh, you know, you find all this stuff that you'd forgotten about. And I had a bunch of pictures that I hadn't seen in years. And it was a picture of him and I, and, uh, and of all places, Ocala. at the Nelson Jones Training Center. I put it up on Facebook yesterday and I got more, you know, people clicking on that than, you know, most of my inane posts about basketball or something. I get 15 people saying something. This one I had a couple hundred because, not because of me, because of him. But, uh, you know, I've said it so many times that it it was a unique experience that I, I was able to actually, um, become not not just work for but become friends with and, and like family with with one of your you know childhood heroes it doesn't happen very often and he actually exceeded expectations uh, someone that's been said that uh, one of the biggest disappointments in life is, is meeting your heroes and and finding out that you know they ain't so great but um he was one of my heroes and i found out that he was he was way better than i even thought uh, as, as a person more than even just as a, as a trainer. And he was a brilliant trainer, but uh, he, he taught me so much about life that uh, things that I still you know think about to this day. And uh, it was an honor to be able to, to spend those, those six years with him. Moving from Alan Jerkins to Ken Ramsey, how was your relationship <laughs> with Ken? Now it's fine. You told me... Can, can you... You told me a fantastic story about Mr. Ramsey. God, I got a lot of them. The one where he kind of scolded you about first-time starters. Can you tell us about, a little bit about that? You still there? I'm there. <laughs> did, 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 did you fall back in your chair when I brought no, up this? I can't remember which story this is the one uh, you, you you were talking to me about, uh, Mr. Rams. Yeah, that he uh, that, that he was, wasn't a first time starter. That was just with any horse. Was, it was about horses that you know he was kind of giving you golf about having you know we, you we needed. Had, we had a couple. We had a couple horses that had come off layoffs. And one thing about him back then was he he would claim. I mean, he would claim like he would claim horses at obscure tracks. I mean, <laughs> he, he was everywhere. You know. Um, but we got a couple horses. You know, sometimes you claim horses at, at the tracks you know, you, you might know a little bit more about it. You're claiming them from someplace like, you know, coming the horse coming in from Great Lakes Downs or someplace, you know. So we had a couple of them, and, you know, we kind of eased them back and <clears throat> we ran them, and, um, you know, we didn't do, we didn't work them too hard. I mean, these were claiming horses. These weren't babies or anything, but just trying to get them back, get their legs under them. And, and run them before you know something else happened. I had to send them back to the farm. He ate when we had to send them back to the farm. And uh, you know we working them half miles, pretty slow. And so he says to me, calls me up and he says, you know I got a problem with the way you're working the horses. And I was like, okay, go ahead. He said, I think these 
resources should be working five-eighths of a mile because they're all coming up a little short, you know, blah, blah, blah. Of course, they all were a little short. But, um, you know, one thing about Mr. Ramsey I learned pretty quick was that when he has something in his mind, you just do it. You just go with the flow. Mike Maker has done that probably as it, probably is his, his, his best. Uh, Mike is an easygoing guy, so he just kind of lets things roll off his back, and, and that's the only reason he's made it with Ken as long as he has because Ken can come up with some wild ideas sometimes. <laughs> but you just had to let him go with it, you know? And um, I said, Mr. Jamie, that's fine. I'll work them all five days. So we called up the clocker the next day, and I said, uh, every time I work a horse half mile, I want the gallop out time. What do you mean? I said, we're going to work them five days. Every horse I'm working now is going to work from the, the pole to, 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 the, to the pole after the wire. And they're like, what are you talking, just, just please, I just want to work in 5 A's. They're all 5 A's works from now on. I'll consider 5 A's works. And they're like, peak festival. He's like, you're nuts, but whatever, that's fine. <laughs> so It's the same horse, kind of work you were doing before, right? Exactly the same. They were going 49 <laughs> and 4, and they were galloping out in 102 and 3. <laughs> but we were putting 102 and 3 instead of the 49 and 4. And honestly, if it was like, we were being deceptive i would have felt worse about it like you know if if, if we were putting 105 and the horses were working 49 and galloped out in 16 seconds but that wasn't how i trained them i mean i trained the horses to finish up through the wire and, and a lot of times the the the, the, the the eighth of a mile past the wire was faster than the first eighth of a mile so to me it was pretty much you know six in one hand half a dozen in the other so um, like I said, a lot of 49s out and 102s were actually, you know, 102s when before they were called 49s. It, it really, there was nothing to it. Of course, all the horses that had had a race under their belt now came back and won. <laughs> so he calls me up, right? He's saying, you see, I think old Ken, you know, you don't think he knows what he's talking about. But, you know, I, you know, all those 5 age workouts, now you see what happened. The horses all started winning. And, you know, I just had to bite my tongue. <laughs> the horses were training exactly the same. But, I mean, literally the same. And, and uh, it, it was it was funny. But, I mean, I, listen, he gave me an opportunity to train when I was, you know, a bigger nobody than I am now. And uh, he, he, he gave me a lot of rope. I mean, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't happy about some of the things that he did, the way he operated. And I think that uh, we did really well for him. And he kind of, you know, um, what's the word? He didn't uh, take it seriously. No, no, no. We did really well for him, and as soon as we did, instead of rewarding us, he started sending horses to every other trainer in America. <laughs> and you know, like that was that that bothered me because you know the year before we had forty horses and, and we did well, and and then the next year, um, you know, we have sixteen, eighteen, and so you know we we decided to. Ways. He took a horse from me called Nothing to Lose, who was a great, wound up being a great one winner. Uh, the, honestly, it was a great story about that horse. Uh, he uh, he had been in the two-year-old in April sale, and, and he hadn't sold. Mr. Hans bought him back. He almost sold and bought him back. Um, and we got him up uh, to Churchill. We were working him. And as a matter of fact, he was the last horse my ex-wife worked before she finally quit, quit. And uh, she said to me, she worked in a Churchill, 5 Ace and 105, all out. And this was like uh, last 
week in June, first week in July. And she said to me, she goes, I sure hope he can run on the turf because she goes, is he bred for the turf? I said, yeah. She goes, I sure hope he can run on the turf because he sucks on the dirt. <laughs> I was, I was asking for everything. Of course, you know, she weighs a hundred pounds. She goes, I was asking for everything he had. And he, goes, he just paddles, you know, he just doesn't show much. So, um, you know, sometimes you make these decisions and of course, Later on, you look brilliant, and at the time, you're just taking a shot. So back then, there was very few places you could work a horse on a tur- on the turf. Um, Saratoga was one of them. We were going up there with a big stable. He's an unraced horse. He's a two-year-old. His brother was a pretty good turf horse. Of course, in everything to gain. So his brother was like a 50 claimer on the turf. You know, a pretty solid turf horse. And his brother could run on the dirt a little bit. So that was the thing was he, he could he wasn't terrible on the dirt he was much better on the turf but he wasn't uh, you know if the grace came off he'd run but his brother was, was he was awful on the dirt so I said to myself you know what I'm gonna do I'm gonna send this horse to Saratoga we're gonna work him on the turf a couple of times over at Oklahoma and see how he likes it and and then we'll go from there if he if he handles the turf then this horse might be okay but if he doesn't we'll just send you know we'll just run him. You know, we'll send them to Monmouth and we'll run them for Maiden, Maiden 20 or Maiden 15. Because back then, Saratoga didn't even have cheap Maiden claimers. I mean, I think 35 was like the cheapest they'd run. So um, I bring them to Saratoga and I had another two-year-old I was going to work them with. And back then, it was it was Saratoga, Oklahoma track on the turf was, was more chaos than it is now. We were only doing three days a week. And it was 30 minutes and, you know, no turf slips. So it, it was just crazy because everybody wanted to try their horse on the turf. The horse, you know, you couldn't, because there wasn't nearly as many races, especially for younger horses. And it was like literally the only place you could work a horse that wasn't a stake horse on the grass. So it was just a madhouse. <clears throat> so I had a, a, another horse that I was going to work in a company with. And the other horse, of course, springs a shoe. And you know Saratoga, to get a blacksmith over, you know, if he's on the other side of the track, to fix the shoe in time, uh, I said, there's no chance. I told the rider, uh, Louis Chiard, Louis, there's so many horses out there, just go pick up company, even if they don't want it, screw them, just, you know, just follow along with somebody. And if the trainer has a problem, tell them to come talk to me, I don't care. So he goes out there and he picks up a set that's breaking off uh, down the backside. And I, 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 we're, we're going to work five days. So um, there's another set that we run up right behind. So there's two horses uh, in a set of Rusty Arnold's. About three lengths behind, there's two horses, a set of, of Elliot Walden's. This is how long ago Elliot Walden was training. And then there was us. So it was almost like a five-horse race. So Louis, I had red saddle towels, and Louis was dressed. He had a red vest and a red helmet. He was a team guy, man. He looked like a... Like a like a like a tomato with legs and arms, but I could see him. <laughs> so they they start to kind of bunch up on the turn, and they're going pretty good down the backside. And uh, the Walden's horses come off the rail and, and, and come out to go around Rusty's horses, and my horse is behind them. So as they turn for home, you know Oklahoma, the, the mm-hmm. that little dip at the quarter pole. So when they're coming like straight at you, it's hard to see the horse behind. So there's four of them across the wire, and I'm behind, I know I'm behind there, but I can't really see what's going on. 
and I got a, I got a clock on him. Um, but you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's a little hectic there. So, uh, I, I can't remember if, if one of the horses ducked in or ducked out, but a hole kind of opened up and this horse came through that hole. Like he was standing still. He looked like a running back running through the offensive line. And he just left those horses. He, he, he beat the pair probably at four or five lengths. That was a two-year-old unraced horse. It's never worked faster than 104, 105. So Freddie Bond was the clock. I, was, I had a golf cart. I was sitting right by the, the clocker stand. <laughs> Freddie, Freddie yells down to me. Who is that? Who's that? Whose horse is that? So I, I got in the golf cart and I took off. And he's like, <laughs> he's yelling. I'm just ignoring. You know? <laughs> I look at my watch, fifty-seven and four. Oof. So I'm like, that, that, you know, and, and it was dry and it was fast. And I'm not the world's greatest clocker by any means. So I, I, I knew it was really fast. And maybe it was a second and a second and a half. Visually, it was impressive. It. it was like unbelievable, especially when I found out who the other horses were. So. I'm at the barn, and the kid comes back. He's like, he goes, this horse, is a, this is a monster. He goes, I, 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 he goes, it's not even like the same horse. It's like, you know, like on the dirt, you gallop him, and on the turf, oh, my, you know, whoa, whoa, whoa. So he asked me what I got him, and I told him, and I said, listen, you know, I think you're shaded 58. I know that sounds insane, but he goes, he goes, he wasn't, he goes, I couldn't even do anything. He goes, he only run the last quarter. He goes, he was just cruising. So, uh. So Freddie comes by. <laughs> That's the clocker, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I had gotten a couple horses from Dermot Weld, and we had gotten the papers, and the papers had just gotten the office. And uh, I had gotten a horse from Dermot Weld earlier in the spring, and, and uh, just a horse, too. I mean, they didn't have much hope for him. Mr. Ramsey picked out a spot up in uh, Canada for him, in Nassau, and we ran this filly up there, and she ran third at like 50 to 1. So, you know, Freddie didn't miss a trick. So he, he was thinking this is one of those Dermot, some Dermot Weld horse, you know, from Europe, running in one of those listed stakes or something. And I, and I couldn't, I couldn't resist. I said, that ain't a Dermot Weld horse. He goes, well, that's a two-year-old. He can never run. He didn't believe me. <laughs> but, you know, we, didn't, we, didn't, we didn't have the papers yet either. But, because, uh, uh, you know, got a big farm, the horse had been out of sets, yeah, you know. So now we have to put a cert APB out. Like, where is this horse's papers? Where's the full papers? But, um, so I he didn't him, believe you when you told him the truth. He he did, he did. He he was like, "Well, you better keep a lid on that one." I said, "Yeah, he's not going to see the turf again until he runs." Yeah. So um, I don't know what it's some a couple. It was so long ago. Something happened where I didn't get to run him until the last weekend of the meet. And it was a Sunday. I remember it was cloudy all day. And I was like, if it's rain, it gets taken off the turf. I'm going to, like, shoot myself. <laughs> so uh, Mark Gidry, who had a miserable meet, he had done, he had just, like, everything worked out terrible. I mean, like, every time he was on a live horse, it got scratched. He got checked. You know, he just had a bad. He was a good rider. He just had a bad. So uh, we're, like, 15 to 1 morning line. And, uh, you know, Gidry, he was, he was always... If he, if he knew he was on a live one, he could make a couple dollars, you know. He wasn't afraid of it. So I told him, I said, we we, we, we bet 200 for you. <laughs> I mean, you're 15 one morning line. So he's like, well, you know, I was like, trust me, this is the best horse you've been on all, all meet. 
definitely. Whatever you do, don't get cute and try to sneak up the inside or get blocks. Especially in those, you know, those two-year-old races in Saratoga, the, the, yeah. the, the turf races on the inner turf, and they, they hit that first turn and everybody scatters. And this. Just don't get caught 20 wide or, you know, get checked. You know, just ride like you're on the best horse because I'll be honest, I, I, I can't imagine anyone this race competing. So we all bet on the horse. And, um, so they're going down the backside. He's last. <laughs> He's last by like three. And I'm like, shit. I was, <laughs> I was, you know, every trainer will, will, will say the same thing. There's sometimes in races where you start second guessing yourself and you're thinking, shit, did I train, you know, did I do the right thing? I should have blew the horse out. I shouldn't have done this. I should have put it the right. You know, all these thoughts go through your mind as a trainer because you know everything that's going on with the horse, and, you, and now you're second guessing because you know they're at the half mile pole, and, and your horse is, is still sitting last. But uh, he moved his hands, tapped him on the shoulder, and he went from last to first and about an eighth of a mile on the turn. And uh, he was going so fast, his momentum carried him about seven, eight wide. And uh, he, he just galloped home. I mean, he went easy. Um, paid $37, something like that. And, uh, and you know, this was kind of like the end of the line for me and Mr. Ramsey because he, because I, I saw, you know, a turf horse. And he saw a derby horse. And I think my exact quote to him is, the only derby that horse is going to be winning is like the, Calder Derby or the Virginia Derby. He can't run a lick on the dirt. So my plan was to run him at Keeneland in allowance, run him at Keeneland's the end of the mistake, run him at Hollywood Park, used to have that two-year-old turf stake, because there wasn't a the Hollywood Derby. Derby. The Hollywood Derby. No, the Hollywood Derby's a three-year-old. This was some bullshit nerdy ever something. It was like a $75,000 oh, stake. Oh, yeah, yeah, there yeah, was. on Thanksgiving Day weekend. Right, you're talking yeah. about the beginning, like 2000. One, two thousand two, there was a handful of two-year-old stakes. Right. If, if the Breeders' Cup had a turf race for two-year-olds at that time, I might have still trained for him. Shit, I might have still trained for him now. Who knows? Because that would have been, you know, he would have been one of those buzz horses for that race. But back then, you know, unless you showed something on the dirt as a two-year-old, no one really gave a shit about you because until. Uh, the summer as a three-year-old, there really wasn't a whole lot of, of important turf stakes for, for, for two-year-olds. Um, they had the one race at, at, at Belmont. Um, Monmouth had, like, the junior champion. Uh, Keeneland always had the, the, the stakes, $75,000 stakes. Uh, they had one for the turf and one for the – I mean, one for the boys, one for the girls uh, – the Valley View or something. I mean, they weren't. They weren't like you know. There just wasn't much of a two-year-old schedule. The real, the first significant two-year-old race for turf horses back then was really a three-year-old race. It was the Calder Derby. It always used to be on the first on, on January first. It was like a traditional, like, you know, the quote-unquote first Derby of the year. But um, Mr. Ramsey wanted to run him on the dirt, and uh, for whatever his reasons were, he took the horse from me and gave him to Wayne Lucas. He was going to make him his derby horse. And uh, they ran him on the dirt at Keeneland, and he ran, you know, he got beat like 15 lengths. He actually ran better than I thought he'd run. I thought he'd beat 30, but he got beat about 15 lengths. And then, of course, they put him back on the turf, and uh, Bobby Frankel wound up with the horse. That's what I thought. 
Because I yeah, remember that horse the, from California. Yeah. Yeah, he, he wound up winning the, the race, the, the championship. Might have been the shoemaker. They, they kept... Uh, At Hollywood Park. Yeah, yeah. But he, he wound up winning. Uh, he ran in the Breeders' Cup, but he never really did any good in the Breeders' Cup. But, um... Yeah, he won a couple great, a couple greatest things. I remember that won. horse. I think he, he wound up going to stud in like Australia or New Zealand or somewhere. He never really did much at stud, but, but he, he could he could really run that horse, man. That was it, it, it was one of those night and day things. But people now, you know, take for granted two year old races on the turf. When I first worked for Ramsey, we did really well claiming horses that had turf pedigrees and running them on the turf. Um, we well, claimed, Ramsey claimed him out of Oak Lawn. And, and uh, when I first started working for him, he actually claimed him right about a month before I went to work for him. And I wound up with the horse. I ran him at Churchill. Who is this now? What horse is this now? A horse, a horse called the Knight Scott. Uh-huh. The Knight with a K. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he claimed it for 20000 out of Oak Lawn, and he had never run on the turf. And uh, I, went, I ran my Churchill going a mile, and I, I, I believe we ran third going a mile in the dirt. Uh, so we brought him to Saratoga. Um, he was my first Saratoga starter, as a matter of fact. And he won opening day at Saratoga, and an A other than Robbie Alvarado rode him. Uh, and he won and paid uh, $60, 60-something dollars. And he won easy, too, really easy. And, I got. Uh, I have. I, I got to tell you, we could sit here and talk all day of these stories. These stories are what people love to hear. But we're running out of time, so I wanted to. You, you mean they don't like to hear me bitch about takeout and things like that? Uh, well, we're gonna edit some of that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, people are saying that racing's evolved in a lot of ways, and some of the good parts are. are there a lot more opportunities on different surfaces and yeah you know turf sprints when when i was uh you know go back into the 90s when i was an assistant the only place that ran turf sprints were were gimmick tracks what we're going to call you know like parks or well it's keystone right. or uh atlantic city would run some turf sprints and, but but uh you know some of the mid-atlantic tracks would run but that was it i mean well, now those turf sprints they, they are safe. A, they wouldn't have run a turf sprint 30 years ago if, if, if someone gave them $20 million to run the races. Well, now it's saving some horses' careers. Well, sure. I mean, it's. I mean, sometimes I think they've gone, well, part of the reasons, I'm, I'm, I'm not, you know, a great handicapper to start with, but I, I can't figure those races out to save my life. Speed. But, um, Speed. But yeah, uh, I mean, of course. Well, but, well, Chuck, uh, my question for you is, before we, we've only got about two minutes left, what's next for Chuck Simon? Well, I keep playing the Powerball. <laughs> well, I have a plan, plan. That's my plan B. Yeah. <laughs> At least I'm, I'm, I'm not smart, but I'm smart enough to know that shouldn't be the plan A. The, the Powerball? Uh, Powerball. <laughs> Believe me, if I hit the Powerball, you think I'm unleashed now. <laughs> well listen but, uh, guys like you need to be in the game um i've gotten to know you a little bit um and um 
you're definitely one of the good guys in the game. You got a great opinion. You got great experience. Um, what I'd like to do is maybe uh, have you back on. Um, maybe uh, as we get closer to to the Derby, we can talk Derby a little bit. But I want to go into some even some more stories because people love those, and I love to hear them. I'll talk to my booking agent and see if uh, you know I got any spots. All right, you got it, buddy. I want to thank you for your time as we're going the last minute. Uh, Chuck, uh, you're not going to go back into training, are you? Uh, I don't think so. Okay. I mean, honestly, I, I miss the horses, but uh, uh, the business of training right now is so upside down that uh, unless you hit the Powerball and want to send me 10. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Mr. Powerball, Chuck Simon has been with us. Um, I want to thank everybody for joining us, um, and, um, and and Chuck, you've been awesome. Thanks for your time, and Joe and I say have a great night, and we'll speak to you soon. We'll get you back on soon. Feed that dog, man. Uh, I'm going to do that right now. He gets his salmon in about a f- couple of minutes. So, all right. Hey, Chuck, hit the Powerball, okay? You got him playing. All right. See you later. That was Chuck Simon. And uh, thank you for joining us.